The portal, the beauty, the glimpse. Thank you for making the greatest decision of your life. This is Long Story Short, a podcast by our stories at the University of Utah. We're here to share student stories and update you on all the most important info about the U. I'm your host, Talmadge White, and we're coming at you from sunny Salt Lake City. My name is Talmadge White. We're on Long Story Short today, and I'm with my colleagues Jack Lake and Francesca Levitas. And today we're diving into psilocybin and psychedelics, and more specifically, their potential therapeutic uses. So today we're honored to bring on Dr. Benjamin Lewis, who's a published and cited author doing research here at the University of Utah. He is a board-certified psychiatrist who does research on the effect of different psychedelics on different mental disorders. So thanks so much, Dr. Lewis, for joining us today. So let's just dive right in. Could I hear a little bit about how you went from an English major at Harvard? I'm an English major right now, so I'm, I'm interested in kind of your background that way. And then how you went from that to University of Iowa College of Medicine. So we, long story short, we moved out to Iowa. Uh, and I started volunteering in a... Uh, neurology research lab run by Antonio Damasio, who's not in Iowa anymore, um, but at that time was doing a lot of research on consciousness and autobiographical memory. Um, and I started working in that lab and connected with some people in neurology and psychiatry and sort of thought maybe I would redo some or, or go back and take some science class. So I, I did that after the fact and then applied to medical school and psychiatry uh so yeah a, a little bit of a a little bit of a longer road to get there i guess yeah so we're wondering what first intrigued you about using psychedelic substances to treat psychiatric disorders and when did you know that this was for sure what you wanted to study yeah good question i mean i i would say like when i fit within residency and finishing residency this was not really on my agenda or on my radar at the same sense. And um, I had spent a number of years working as an inpatient adult psychiatrist um, at the University of Utah. And, you know, I, I think anybody working in mental health becomes really intimate with some of the limitations of tools that we have and kind of the level of suffering that people can have that we're not often able to do a whole lot about and for me personally that began to accrue a, a toll and you know in, in the meantime i was sort of interested in following a lot of the early research right back in the you know, 2010 and, and around that time when things really started kicking up again with with psychedelic research um you know, and then then it was a series of, of somewhat kind of accidental um, events that connected me with a couple other people within the institution, and we had some momentum to do an initial pilot study, and one thing sort of led to another, and so it's been a bit of a a process. And you know, I don't, I I didn't have a really significant research background before getting into any of this. So it's been, it's been a learning curve there as well, just trying to get comfortable and some familiarity with running clinical trials. And so it, you know, it's, it's been a process really over the last five years or so to, to get things 
kind of up and running with some smaller projects and been a been a bit of a bit of an adventure. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so next question. Psilocybin is currently a schedule one drug. Do you see this classification changing in the future? And what is the process to be certified and allowed to use psilocybin legally in a research setting? Yeah, that's right. So psilocybin and other classic psychedelics are on Schedule 1, which is a designation that really suggests that they would have no real conceivable medical use, right? And, and it's not a designation that really makes sense for, for classic psychedelics, either from a therapeutic standpoint or from a risk standpoint as well. And you know, many, and it's not to say that these are, these are just completely safe chemicals, right? But many studies now over a number of years have demonstrated, yeah, a really robust safety record and, um, you know, minimal potential for abuse with classic psychedelics in particular. Um, so that designation I think will and will and should change as far as where that should move, like perhaps like schedule three would be like a reasonable place for, for that set of compounds. Um, one, one effect of having that class of drugs in schedule one is it makes it really hard to study them, it makes it very hard to do, to do research and it makes it hard to obtain study drug. Right. And, um, so it, it really doesn't, it really doesn't make sense from kind of any way that you look at it, that those, those chemicals are classified in that way. Gotcha. So, so you said it's hard to use. So what is the process like to actually use it in a research setting? Yeah, it's pretty involved because you need to move through a number of regulatory hurdles. So you have to, you have to apply to the FDA to be able to use psilocybin for an indication that you're proposing and you have to have a, what's called an IND to, to move forward. Uh, with that study. And then you also have to be moving through the DEA um, to get approval to use the Schedule 1 drug. And you need a schedule, a special license, right? So a Schedule 1 license that you then apply for. And then you have to have the DEA essentially certify the storage parameters and how you're going to distribute the drug and who's handling it. So it's a, it is a huge rigmarole, right? And on top of that, you need your own institutional um, review board, the IRB, to approve your study, right, which is another significant hurdle. Um, you also then need to obtain study drug from some company, right? And then you have to have whatever institution or organization you're working with successfully contract for that study drug, which is another rate-limiting step. So it it can seem almost impossible to get something off the ground, even like a very, very small trial. Um, and it's also incredibly expensive. Like those psilocybin capsules are for the most part, just very expensive to, to obtain. And, um, so, so the process is quite, is quite difficult and, um, and, and quite slow. And in large part, I think has had an effect on limiting the size of many of these studies, right? They're, they're by and large, pretty small studies to date. So you kind of talked about earlier, you know, since 2010, there has been a boom of more of these studies. And culturally, it's become more, you know, we've become a little bit more uh, accepting of psychedelics as a culture. 
um, I'm curious to hear your perspective on how the overall perception has changed over the years, both on the clinical research level as well as the recreational level in the cultural zeitgeist. Yeah, well, I, I think that I think it's changed dramatically, even in the last few years. And and you know, Michael Pollan's book came out in 2018, and that was another huge watershed moment in terms of like cultural sensibility with psychedelics, right? And um, you know, suddenly you have pieces of New Yorker talking about psychedelics. So I, I think that I think that book in particular had a big effect on sort of the popular imagination, acceptability, and you know, I I think that. I think it's a double-edged sword. Like, I think that it's it's good to sort of reduce the stigma associated with these chemicals. On the, the flip side of that, I think we're living in a time where there's just massive hype about classic psychedelics, and there's underestimation and underrepresentation of possible harms. And I think there's a lot of... I, th I think there's... I, I think we're at a really vulnerable time with the field, basically. And, and I think that... Um, I think it's important to do this thoughtfully and carefully. And so I, you know, I, I, I sort of feel, I feel tension on both sides of that. I, I would say currently, I feel like the larger issue is sort of this unjustified hype surrounding psychedelics that probably doesn't necessarily map on to where those therapeutic benefits might actually lie and might, you know, lead to potential harm. Um, in certain ways used in, you know, less supervised settings. Um, so I think, I think it's a really interesting time for the field right now. So you mentioned how, how like in a therapeutic setting, it's more beneficial. We were wondering, could you walk us through what that therapeutic setting looks like? And like, how does it change compared to what psychedelic substance you're using? Yeah, yeah. You know, and I should make a caveat there. I mean, psychedelics and plant medicines are used in a wide range of contexts. And the medical model, like a psychedelic assisted therapy model, is a narrow model, right? It is one of many ways in which these compounds get used. And and by no means the end-all, be-all of, of psychedelics, right? I mean, many indigenous traditions have used plant medicines for thousands of years and have... Um, cultural containers for doing that um, in ways that are safe. So, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to overplay the medical model necessarily, although the medical model has certain advantages with it. In a, in a psychedelic assisted therapy model, there is this sort of focus on treating conditions, right? And that, that's distinct from spiritual traditions or recreational settings. In a psychedelic assisted therapy model, you might be focused on you know, treating depressive symptoms, for instance. So the the focus of using using that psychedelic, and, and this might look different for different psychedelics, right, um, would largely kind of be oriented towards, you know, and, and goal, goals is like a tricky word with this, right, because, you know, you never really know how this is going to go, and whatever it is you're aiming for, you want to hold it lightly as well with, with these sorts of interventions. But, um, yeah, there there is this, this more coherent focus on um, addressing certain kinds of symptoms. These interventions are, you know, very focused on set and setting. So like big emphasis on preparation for the sessions, gaining comfort with the therapist, having some time for discussion of whatever issues have been going on in your life that bring you there, education about the session and what to expect. So 
preparation is like a huge part of that and then support through the dosing session. And then on the flip side of that, uh, in what are called integration sessions, right? Where, where you're sort of unpacking things that came up in the experience and you're, you're looking at ways of bringing that forward into your life, right? It's, it's one thing to just have a big experience. It's another thing to show up with that and kind of engage with that and institute changes that might sustain some of those, some of those things. So that's kind of the, the general model of a psychedelic assisted therapy intervention. M most of these studies have been individual format. So one participant and typically two therapists present for all of those sessions. Um, so it, it has been like a very resource intensive kind of intervention. Awesome. Um, what does a specific dose look like during the therapy session when the medical model? So like thinking about psilocybin in particular. Um, so, you know, another distinction within kind of clinical trials is that typically you're using a synthesized version of this chemical. You're using a synthesized, you know, pure psilocybin that's in a capsule form. There are there are now like drug manufacturers that are using natural, you know, mushroom material, right? That they, they have their own formulations, but most trials have used synthesized psilocybin and there've been, there've been a range of dosages used. The most commonly used study dose is around 25 milligrams of psilocybin. It's difficult sometimes to do like direct conversions to dried mushroom weight, just given different potencies of psilocybin mushrooms, but probably somewhere in the range of like three and a half to four, four and a half grams of dried mushrooms. So it's considered a high dose. Um, it's not a, not a micro dose. It's not even a small dose. It's considered a high dose of psilocybin. Um, it's a dose that reliably, uh, yeah, a high frequency of intense mystical experiences for, for study participants. Awesome. And then, so our specific project is based on psilocybin uh, benefits for addiction. We know that your work uh, regarding psilocybin mainly focuses on depression, but do you see potential benefits for psychedelic treatment for addiction? Uh, and would you be interested in pursuing this research? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think a ton of potential there for, for different psychedelics. I mean, looking at psilocybin, in particular, uh, Matt Johnson's initial pilot study work with tobacco uh, use disorder from 2014 was, I think, just remarkable, like a really small study, but super promising, really big signal there. And, you know, he is now doing an NIH-funded um, trial, continuing that vein of research, looking at um, tobacco use disorder. There was a recent study um, just a year ago on alcohol use disorder with psilocybin. It was, again, really promising. Um, phase two trial um, and larger than, than previous studies have been done. And, and again, really, really significant results. Um, you know, there, there, there's a lot of promise looking at Ibogaine in particular for opioid use disorder. Um, there is promise with ketamine. We've, we've just finished the study of ketamine-assisted psychotherapy for for people with opioid use disorder, um, although in certain ways a little trickier with ketamine, given what's uh, 
you know, estimated to be a higher abuse potential with that medicine. But I think a, I think a ton of promise for for substance use disorders and alcohol use disorder with this sort of general class of intervention. Awesome, great response. What do you think when comparing different addiction recovery methods? Would you say there's one that really stands out? Like when comparing psilocybin to ketamine to more traditional addiction methods, um, what does it look like what we usually treat for addiction? Like what's what's kind of the general regimen if someone has a cigarette or alcohol addiction? Yeah. Well, it, it looks different for different forms of addiction. Um, you know, so for, say, tobacco use disorder, um, you know, standard of care typically involves nicotine replacement therapies, so a patch or lozenges or gum, uh, plus or minus additional pharmacologic aids, so like bupropion gets used, varenicline or Cantix gets used. You know, ultimately even, and, and then there are psychotherapeutic and motivational interventions that get used there, like cognitive behavioral therapies, motivational enhancement techniques. And you can stack these interventions. And even even in doing that, even doing sort of the full court press, it just turns out that, you know, it's not all that effective. Like some some fraction of people are able to quit, but um, a huge a huge fraction of people are not. And so standard of care treatments are just fairly limited. And that's looking at like smoking, right? And different, you know, other other addictions have different kinds of pharmacologic aids, right? So when you think of opioid use disorder, generally standard of care there involves medically, uh, you know, me medically assisted therapies with buprenorphine or suboxone or methadone. Uh, alcohol use disorder, there, you know, you're thinking about combinations of um, standard therapeutic interventions or 12-step programs as well as other pharmacologic aids like naltrexo, a camprosate, things like that. So different different patterns of uh, addiction look different. I, I think that what can unite all of them is that um, we're just very limited in terms of um, being successful in, in helping people achieve recovery and then sustain recovery. So um, these are just very hard conditions to treat. And... Um, so the idea of having new, new tools available that, um, yeah, it's just really, really exciting. Cool. So I want to move a little bit to the process, right, of what growing, supplying a trip looks like. Um, you know, you kind of touched on this on how to get permission to grow mushrooms, right, psilocybin. Um, you have to get FDA approval. I'm curious when supplying the actual psilocybin, how would researchers go about this? Do, does anyone go outdoors to get it? Or how, what is this growing and supplying like? Yeah, and, and, you know, there are now manufacturers of psilocybin that are using mushroom material, but really to date, this has all been synthesized formulation of psilocybin. So it comes in a capsule. You know, the, those capsules come in little medicine, individually packaged medicine bottles that are stored in, you know, massive layers and of, uh, you know, um, Mission Impossible level safe, DEA inspected safes, right? And, um, but really in our, in our trial that we've done with psilocybin to date, which has really just been two trials, we've done a trial with um, patients with 
symptoms of depression associated with a cancer diagnosis, and we're now running a trial for frontline healthcare providers dealing with burnout and depression. Um, and we're using a synthesized psilocybin capsule, and we're both of these studies have been group format. So on our dosing day, we are in a group space, and we're sitting around in a circle. Um, and in these studies, we we make that process ceremonial in the sense, not in any like specific traditional way, but like people take their medicine all at the same time and then kind of go to their separate spaces in the in the group room. Um, look, looks looks pretty different. Yeah. So kind of going off what you were just saying, I am curious what it looks like with big pharma getting more involved, right? Because we've we've done some research on how there is this separation of the different compounds, right? And do you think there's any ethical challenges with separating the different parts of the mushrooms or issues that come with that? Um, and along with that, issues with big pharma getting involved. And if I can add on to that real quick. Yeah. We know that big pharma is trying to patent uh, the mushroom. So they, we read something about how they're trying to take out the mystical experience, the actual psilocybin within it, kind of like they did with CBD. Um, do you find this unethical? And do you think that the mystical experience is something needed actually for the treatment? Yeah, those, those are all great questions. And let me, let me take them one at a time because those are, those are all kind of big questions. And you might have to remind me if I forget the, the last part of the question, but you know, take the first part of that, uh, of the two kind of issues you were raising there, the, the issue of like an entourage effect of different chemicals within, within philosophy mushrooms, right? And what happens if you're distilling out just one chemical within that sort of larger group of chemicals? I, I guess I'm not, I'm not as worried about that as an ethical issue per se. I think that's a, that's an issue of biochemistry and that's an empirical question. I think that um, it's certainly, you know, psilocybe mushrooms contain a whole range of other chemicals apart from psilocybin, cysteine, right? And, and it's certainly possible some of those have psychoactive effect. I, I don't, I don't see that so much as I see that as a separable issue from issues of like big pharma, separable issue from like commercialization of psychedelics. Although, you know, distilling a distilling psilocybin offers these avenues for big pharma and commercialization, right? And so I, I think I think maybe that was the point you're getting at. The second part of the question, you know, that I think that's a really big set of issues, right? And and I think it's a complicated set of questions as well. Um and it's certainly like a really big pressing issue right now in the the world of psychedelic medicine. This is like a really hot topic, right? Like what what to make of these larger pharmaceutical companies like um, that are manufacturing and even trying to patent uh, either the chemical or the mechanism of delivery or the the vehicle surrounding the delivery. So all of that, um, I think, gets really, really pretty interesting. The, 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 the piece I would recommend people read, which maybe you guys have already seen, is we will call it Paula by David Alder. It's a graphic story. We will call it Paula, P-A-L-A. It's sort of a fictional story, um, just sort of walking through many of the sets of issues that might come up here with 
commercialization. And I, I see it as quite prescient as far as what might become of psychedelic medicine as we move forward into this sort of new, brave new world, right, of, uh, of profits and uh, scaling this and, and delivering this. And um, all of that worries me quite a bit. Um, same token, on, on, on the flip side of that, not everybody can go to Costa Rica and use ayahuasca, right? And, and so pathways of FDA approval that we have in existence right now involve a whole a whole set of things that w w we might take issue with but but one other effect there is that there can't be a dramatic increase in access for for people who are otherwise never going to have the opportunity to to get this and so you know I, I don't think it's a really i don't think it's a set of issues that lends itself to like a binary kind of good bad sort of thing i think it's a really complicated conversation i think it's a critical conversation for what do we want this to be? What do we want psychedelic medicine to look like? And what's important here with this? And what are the things about it that are actually healing, right? And it's real easy to overestimate the effect of a chemical. And don't get me wrong, like these chemicals are interesting and they seemingly do things, right? But one thing that they seemingly do very reliably is open people up to the therapeutic things that are, are that are potentially there surrounding them already, right? And so if you misplace that emphasis, which you could see kind of this pharmacologic model doing, I think you miss out on a huge component of what is actually therapeutic here. And that, that's kind of one set of worries I have, I have with, with this whole medicalization route. Um, but I, I think this is a really complicated set of questions. The question, Jack, that you raised about like trip-free psychedelics, right? Or like classic psychedelic analogs that lack experiential elements, right? Or they might they might be serotonin two agonists that don't cause these sort of like altered states of consciousness. And you know, I I, I guess I don't see that as like necessarily a bad idea. I don't see that as an ethical problem. I see that man, that there are probably, you know, bring it on. If there's more pathways to, to help people who are suffering from conditions that we otherwise largely suck at treating, bring it on, you know, and, and many people are not going to sign up for a psychedelic trip, you know, so they're, they're going to be not interested in that. And that is also totally okay. And so if we had other pathways of delivering effective medicine that it might help, Absolutely. I, I can't see any good reason why we would not, not avail ourselves of those sorts of options. I think that set of questions is really interesting. And I, ultimately, I mean, I think the honest answer is we don't really know what the role of the mystical experience is. It, it has shown up in these trials, in particular with psilocybin. It's like a seemingly large predictor of therapeutic effect, acutely as well as sustained therapeutic effect, right? But there's just, there's many more questions than there are answers in terms of what to make of that. And so I think, I think we really just don't know. Um, I will say being part of these studies and seeing, seeing how this unfolds for study participants and how their experiences kind of inform what becomes important for them therapeutically, man, I, I feel really 
skeptical that you would be able to remove that and maintain the kinds of therapeutic effects that we see. But, you know, I, I think it's really, it's, it's, it's an empirical question. And I think it's a question we should look at, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with, with looking at that and questioning it. Yeah. That's a great response. Very interesting. I read the abstract and the conclusion of the cancer trial for the non, uh, treatable cancer. That was a super cool study. And another one that I looked into, one of your publications, we saw that you were interested in studying the different effects when psychedelics are taken by oneself versus in a group setting. And we know that culturally they were used in a lot of religious practices and in group settings. Um, and a book we read called The Extended Mind, I'm not sure if you've heard of it, but it discusses how to become more intelligent by using things other than your own brain. And in a chapter called Thinking with Groups, it discusses the importance and benefits of group cognition and how it can be enhanced through both interaction and collaboration. A good quote that I like is, a team of firefighters who eat their meals together perform better than firefighters who dine on their own. Based on your research, do you believe that group therapy is a more promising model and method than single-person therapy? Or is it completely circumstantial for what you're treating and how the person reacts to the actual psychoactive? Yeah, yeah, great question. And uh, yeah, I like those. I, I like the way you package that. Um, there's, there's just a lot of things that I, you know, it's the, the real answer is I don't really know, you know. And, yeah. and I think, I think it, it's certainly possible that group formats are not the best for everyone, right? Or not, they're not the best for certain kinds of conditions, right? And I could imagine scenarios where group format might be more challenging than others, right? And, um, you know, for, for instance, in MDMA-assisted therapy for chronic, PT chronic and severe PTSD, I can see very good rationale there for individual format, right? And uh, yeah. I think it's certainly possible that it's, it's not like a one-size-fits-all all kind of thing across different kinds of conditions. I do think I think groups have a lot of potential advantages, right? And some of them you were already kind of describing there. Um, we already know groups, well, we, we, we're social animals, right? We, we function within communities and within groups. And so we, we have these baked in that a psychedelic can really amplify, right? And so we know group therapy works. Right. And we know it's a particularly effective kind of psychedelic, I think, makes makes a lot of sense as far as connectedness within the group and ways in which that's related to therapeutic outcome. Um, so I think I mean, I, I, I really think groups are super exciting for this kind of work and super dynamic and really, really interesting. Um, I think it also addresses challenges of scaling this, too. Right. Where it's so expensive and resource intensive. How are you going to really be able to deliver this in a way to to help the maximum number of people you can. And so I think groups naturally emerge from that as well. Um, I think if you if you look back into the 1950s and early 19 early to mid 1960s, there were a number of group format studies being done. And there have been some like more recent like explorations into that space. Right. Including our, our hope trial, which used a full yeah. full group format with group prep, group dosing, group integration. That's the same model, basically, that we're using for our healthcare provider burnout study. And yeah, I, I think it really holds a lot of promise. 
You know, one thing we are curious about is how do these different projects get funded, right? If uh, some of us want to, are curious about being doctors in the future, um, and I'm curious when you're getting funding for something like psychedelics, what does that look like? Well, it does not look especially lucrative or straightforward. I'll tell you that. At least if you, at least if you're me, there there's now you know there's now the door is cracked with NIH funding. So there's now there's now like a at least one NIH funded trial that's starting and done. Um, but that has not been the case for for 50 years. And so the majority of this work has been funded by philanthropic organizations or even wealthy donors, right? And and that's another reason that is translated into relatively small trials to date, right? And even MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, is really run as a nonprofit, philanthropically funded, um, at least historically. Our funding, so like for the HOPE trial, we had basically some internal funding through our supportive oncology services. We had a, a couple make a donation to additionally kind of contribute. And we basically ran that whole study for about $65,000. No, no, none of our study team, none of the investigators had any time paid for, or um, none of our therapists were paid for that. So it was, it was fully a labor of love, right? And a labor of love, it was extremely intensive, right? And so for our current burnout trial, we have a small grant from the Hefter Institute, which is a yeah, philanthropically funded um, organization that has funded psychedelic studies and very similar, very, very small number of dollars there to, to get these things off the ground. So it, it really, it, and, and it works fine because everybody is completely committed to doing this and, and highly motivated to make this happen. Right. But it's, it's not a straightforward path for, for doing clinical research, at least to date. And, and that's, that's changing. Right. And that, that, that's a moving target and, liable to look different in a few years. Great. Yeah. It's awesome that you and your team and all the researchers are so dedicated and passionate about this topic. Um, I'm about to ask you another complicated, complex, kind of abstract question, but um, have you watched Fantastic Fungi, the Netflix documentary? I did. Yeah. Okay. So this is kind of based on that. Watching Fantastic Fungi, it discusses psilocybin's ability to facilitate synesthesia within a human in the documentary it was an early hominid by synesthesia i'm sure you know what i mean but allowing one to connect one sensory modality to another and for the viewers and for you uh that's basically like hearing a color or tasting a sound and the documentary associates this process to the creation of language giving complex meanings to basically a meaningless sound, how we're talking right now. Um, but the documentary further associates this to the formation of language and the newfound complex sociability and the tripling of the brain size. Uh, I know you talked earlier about how we're social creatures. And then in another book we called, uh, another book we read called Survival of the Friendliest, it discusses the theory of mind. Are you familiar with this theory? Theory of mind? Yes. Yeah. So Vanessa Woods writes, you will spend the rest of your life wondering what other people are thinking. Basically, if I scream, you are worried, or if I point, you will look. 
Uh, survival of the friendliest equates this theory of mine to our species' success and why there aren't Neanderthals walking around in 2023. Um, do you believe that psychedelics have the ability to open up one's theory of mind to others or potentially to the natural world? Yeah, well, what a what a fascinating combination of ideas there. And you guys have been reading some good some good stuff. Um, Got a great professor and, and doing doing a lot of a lot of thinking. That's that's awesome. And uh, and these questions, I think, are a testament to like yeah, like asking some really great questions, right? And um, I think you've brought up a lot there, and I, I think like. For instance, you brought up kind of the stoned ape theory, the linchpin and human evolution, which I think is like a cool idea. I and and it maps on to some of our thoughts and ideas about psychedelics and what they do. I think it's I don't see that necessarily as an idea that has like a lot of substantiation to it scientifically. It's certainly certainly possible that that could have been the case, but at least to my knowledge, that maybe seems like a little bit of a little bit of a stretch um i think i would insert like a note of like caution psychedelics can be seen as the end all be all of a lot of things right and people you know many people have seen this as something that's going to save the world it's going to you know bring on a new stage of human evolution it's going to um and and maybe you know maybe but but i think also maybe important to to pump the brakes a little bit with some of those those ideas, right? Like it, it's, I think those ideas can have a shadow side too that that maybe doesn't always doesn't always get seen, and um, and I think it can be an overvalorization of of psychedelics, right? And um, but y- your question is the sort of human connection and empathy and this notion of theory of mind or the capacity to engage and understand with another person's mind. I mean, classic psychedelics seem uniquely effective at being able to foster and develop and cultivate those kinds of capacities, not just acutely while people are using them, but sort of longitudinally, right? In terms of perspectival shifts and um, kind of new new capacities for growth and engagement, openness and vulnerability, right? And so yeah, I, I see that as like a huge possibility with with a psychedelic, right? I, I mean, I think I don't I, my I don't mean my answer to be deflationary there because I think I think these are really remarkable chemicals. But I think it can be the case that man, even if your compass bearing shifts like three degrees, like that could be a huge thing. If 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 everyone's compass shifts one or two degrees. Wow, humanity's in a really different place, right? And so, um, I think I think small incremental changes can also be really, really important. But I, and now that I'm talking, I'm just run, running on. But like, your question, it. I think also, it, uh, your your question also gets to the sense of like, wow, we live in a very weird time. Like we we live in this time where we're seeing the the destruction and desecration of our planet, right? We're we're seeing what humans are capable of doing to each other despite being able to maybe invent artificial general intelligence, right? And despite new, new landmarks and space travel site, we live in this time where this, this idea or this notion of um, things, things are pretty critical, right? Like we we need to kind of figure this out and we kind of, humans kind of need to figure this out fairly quickly. Right. Um, So 
I think your question also comes from that perspective too of of how are we going to figure this out as a species? Um, are psychedelics part of that? I guess I don't. I don't really know. Um, it seems like they certainly could be a part of that, right? And they could certainly help foster it. Are they the solution? I really doubt it. You know, I think, um, and I think there would probably be big risks in terms of putting all of our eggs in that basket. I think we're ready to wrap things up almost. Yes, we were wondering, what do you think are the necessary steps for research in this field? And also, what would you say to the next generation of scientists that are coming up through undergrad or graduate school and looking to get um, involved or interested in your particular field? What advice would you give? Yeah, yeah, good questions. I think, uh, well, I, I just think there's so much, like, science to be done with this, right? There's just so many questions. And, like, every space here has, like, a thousand questions. To, to, to be looked at, right? And so I think approaching that rigorously and honestly and carefully uh, without an agenda, you know, with scientific equipoise is super important, right? Just keeping keeping that ball rolling, um, you know, and that, that extends from just like very basic science, neurobiology, neuroimaging to clinical trial work, right? So I think there is a ton to be done there. And like, we're really, really just scratching the surface with all of this right now. Um, as far as advice going forward, yeah, I think, um, man, I think cultivating all of the, all of the skills to be able to do that, uh, effectively and rigorously and wisely is really important. So not skimping on that background training and really preparing oneself kind of broadly from a scientific standpoint, I think makes, a lot of sense. So like thinking more broadly about science than just psychedelics, right? Like becoming a well-rounded scientific thinker seems very important. And I would say like staying connected to whatever is pulling you in that direction, right? So there, there is, uh, I will say people working in psychedelic medicine are oriented towards that for, for some like profound personal reasons and and there can be a real heart connection with that kind of work that i think is important to stay connected with and listen to and and also cultivate and that those two domains they don't always line up right they don't always sort of like they're not always mutually reinforcing for each other right and so i think i think having having a foot in both of those places Right. And uh, uh, that seems to me to be important with this field in particular, maybe, maybe just important with with really anything you're going to do in your life, you know? Yeah. Well, I like how we're ending the note on more clinical research and potentially saving the world. Right. Whether mushrooms are involved or not. So um, thank you so much, Dr. Lewis, for coming on and contributing to the podcast. Long story short and our honors work. Um, we really appreciate everything you do and this made for a great discussion. Well, thank you guys. Fun, fun conversation. And thanks for your great questions. And, uh, yeah, pleasure talking with you. Yeah. I yeah. appreciate thank that. You. Thank you. Peace. Thank you for listening to Long Story Short, an Our Stories production. Stay tuned for more insightful and potentially life-changing interviews. Cheers. <laughs>